0: Previously, on Saratoga Lights.
1: Looking at you right now, sets my heart aflutter.
2: Is that why you have that silly grin on your face?
3: We had a deal and I fulfilled my end.
2: (laughs) You
1: cut one little piggy's throat and think that's enough for everlasting life?
3: As God is my witness, I'll personally see that justice be done. God as my witness. Can you imagine what would happen if I just threw open the door and let you in?
1: I did what old Scratch required of me.
0: Saratoga Lights, Season 2, Episode 10, Blood for Old Scratch John Hartigan, Sheriff of Harton County, for nigh on 22 years now, sits in an armchair with a flask in one hand and a phone receiver in the other. A faded tattoo of the Dezavala flag peeks out from the bottom of the sleeve of his dirty white t-shirt stained with fresh blood. His formerly pressed dress shirt is discarded by the front door of the Sewell residence, having recently been converted into a tourniquet. On the couch next to him lay Maggie Sewell, still unconscious from her showdown on the San Gabriel, lucky to be alive in Hardigan's opinion. I
3: saw something out there. What? Pretty little girl, about yay high. ...soulless eyes as black as the Marfa sky. Seem to know you.
2: Sounds familiar.
3: What's all this business about, Preacher?
2: I don't even know anymore, John. I've spent the last ten years fighting this fight... ...and I feel like I'm no closer to seeing it done. I fear your friend Maggie is being used to some nefarious end.
3: I don't know if it's the amount of alcohol I've consumed... But you sound mighty crazy right now. I know. I'll see you soon, preacher.
0: Hartigan hangs up the phone. As he waits for the preacher to arrive, and with Maggie still convalescing, Hartigan finds himself left with only his thoughts and his drink. Having spent already too much time with his thoughts these last few revelatory hours, he opts instead to focus on his drink. He takes a quick swig from the flask and lets the scotch calm his nerves as it slides down his gullet.
3: (gasps) Easy, darling.
2: Jesus, what happened?
3: Jenny brought me that little note right away, and I hightailed it out there to stop you. Or, knowing how stubborn you are, I hightailed it out there to give you some backup. By the time I got there, all the hard work was complete.
2: I will take that drink now.
3: Absolutely, my dear.
2: How long have I been laid out?
3: A few hours. You really did a number on those fellas.
2: Just the one. The other two were done in by the big guy.
3: Sheriff Lafleur is seeing to their bodies.
0: Maggie doesn't give a shit about funeral arrangements. Opting instead to take another drink emptying the remaining contents of the flask into her belly.
3: Did uh, did you see anything out there? What do you mean? Anything out of the ordinary? Anything that would, would make you question everything you're sure of in this world?
2: I think I'd remember if I saw something of that nature.
0: Maggie starts to stand, but pain shoots through her leg, debilitating her. She drops back down a couple of inches to the couch cushion. Hartigan stands in front of Maggie and puts his hand firmly around hers.
3: Gunshot wounds can be rough. Luckily, the bullet went all the way through. No fragments.
0: She steals herself and grabs Hardigan's hand as he helps her rise from the couch.
2: Thank you, Sheriff.
0: It's the first time Maggie afforded him the respect of his office, and it doesn't go unnoticed.
3: My pleasure, Maggie.
2: I'm going to get myself cleaned up.
3: I'll be right here if you need me.
0: She takes each step down the long hallway with intent, trying to minimize the pressure put on her leg, still radiating with pain from the gunshot wound. On the left and right of her are framed pieces of art, mostly ink on canvas done by her grandfather, each one depicting faceless jazz musicians. The pianist and drummer hang across from the bassist and clarinetist. Further down the hall, you pass some horn players. When each is observed individually, it's a finely detailed caricature of a master practicing their craft. As a series, however, Maggie always found it to represent people joining themselves together to create something better than what had come before them. To her, it served as a reminder of the vows and promises made to Avid. Over their lifetime, each one as sacred to her now as when she first made them. Avid, for his part, just thought they looked cool and showed them off to any visitors with as much pride as if he had created them himself. Maggie flips the switch in the bathroom and is met with a reflection in the mirror that she does not recognize. Her hair, caked with mud and the brain matter of William Pistol, lays heavy across her blood-stained face. A bandage is still sloppily taped across her left eye, clearly administered by the unsteady hand of Hardigan. while she was out cold. She gingerly peels it off to reveal the extent of the damage sustained. The skull fragment that was temporarily lodged in her eye tore the sclera in two places, resulting in two distinct gashes. The pressure from the blast resulted in some burst blood vessels, further deteriorating the quality of the eye. Maggie blinks, trying to clear the noticeable blur, but to no avail. She undoes the last remaining buttons from Avid's uniform, those that hadn't been ripped off during her preceding ordeal, and drops the tan rag to the floor. Her body is beat up, bruised. She's seen better days. Hardigan is looking at a neatly framed drawing of a faceless trumpet player. He doesn't get jazz. Give him the simple six-string of Grizzle Gregory any day. He continues to linger in the hallway in the event that Maggie takes a fall from her injuries or is in further need of assistance. A handmade doily with the name Sewell acts as the centerpiece for their accents and decorations flanked by various portraits of themselves and loved ones. Hardigan even spots himself on their wall. He leans in close to the tiny photo of himself shaking the hand of Avid as he gives his deputy a commendation. Not having children or family of his own, Hardigan realizes this must be akin to what a parent would feel, seeing how much their children have grown over the course of their lives. A paternalistic pride grows inside him. It's a feeling unfamiliar to him, until this very moment. He's honored to be included, however slightly, in their familial shrine. The phone rings. Hardigan goes to pick up the receiver in the kitchen. Hello? The line is dead. No dial tone. No nothing. Hardigan hangs it back up. On the counter by the phone, he sees a gold chain necklace. He picks it up and examines the ornate red pendant. Maggie leans back, allowing the water to rinse the grime from her hair. Bits of flesh and matter soak in a small pool of bloody water as it circles the drain. A shower has never felt so good. He runs his thumb along the gold back of the pendant and feels an uneven texture in the midst of an otherwise flawless piece of jewelry. Hardigan flips it over and sees a small inscription. Love Richard. Hardigan jumps and looks at the front door. Who's there at this hour? As he steps out of the kitchen to answer the door, the phone rings again. Hardigan reaches back to the receiver on the counter and presses it to his ear. Hello? Dead silence, again. He lets the receiver lay on the counter, absent any dial or disconnect tone, and cautiously moves towards the door. He passes through the living room and draws his service revolver, letting it hang to his hip. As he reaches for the brass handle of the front door, it starts to turn on its own. Whoever's outside is trying to get in. Hardigan rushes down the hallway towards the bathroom. Maggie! Maggie! Trying to raise Maggie, but to no avail. The unmistakable sound of a key in the deadbolt hits his ears. The bolt slides back, no longer engaged. Hardigan takes a defensive posture by the bathroom door, kneeling down with his gun trained just past the entryway, ready to neutralize the threat. The door opens and a figure rushes in. <laughs> The gun smoke clears, and Hardigan (laughs) sees that he's hit his target, blood painted haphazardly on the wall at the entryway. On the ground, half propped up against the wall, is Jenny, blood pouring from her neck. Maggie hears the gunshot and turns the shower off, trying to decipher what the hell is happening just outside of the bathroom. Hardigan? She throws the shower curtain back and stumbles to get her feet over the tub quick enough. She wraps a towel around her and... Ah! Trudy is in the bathroom, staring at her in the mirror.
1: Kill the preacher. What? If you do that, you can see Avid again.
0: Hartigan rushes over to Jenny. She's trying to speak, but can't. Her blood-soaked hands are trying to stop the blood. Hartigan grabs her neck and tries to put pressure on the wound, watching the life leave her eyes. Her breathing slows, and ceases god. altogether. No! She's a goner. God! Maggie! The preacher appears in the open door, taken back at what has transpired in the short time since he last spoke to Hartigan. John?
3: It... it was... It, 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 it was an accident.
1: <laughs> oh my god!
0: Maggie exits the bathroom and sees what's happened. She rushes over to Jenny and cradles her in her arms. Wanting to do something, anything, to save her, but she realizes it's too late. Hartigan stands up in shock, not believing what he's done. Maggie's tears quickly turn to anger. She jumps up and starts hitting Hartigan.
2: What did you do,
1: what did you do, Hardigan? god damn you.
0: Hardigan takes it. Maggie just breaks down and falls to the ground. Who are you? He's a preacher,
3: Maggie. I think in light of our current state of affairs, he can help.
2: You're the preacher?
0: The preacher nods solemnly.
2: Did Hardigan inform you of my earlier deeds? He told me some. You think I'll go to heaven when I die? I think God's grace is sufficient for all our sins. And when you die? What happens to someone such as yourself? If I've done good, then I hope the Lord sees fit to grant me entrance to those pearly gates. And Jenny too?
0: Jenny too. Maggie has a dead look in her eyes. The preacher leaves her to her grief and quickly surveys the rest of the house, checking the windows and the back door to ensure that they're locked and secure. As he moves through the kitchen, The red pendant on the counter stops him dead in his tracks, Trudy's necklace. He grabs it and rushes back to confront Maggie.
2: Where did you get this? I've never seen that before.
0: The preacher goes to the front door and looks out the peephole. Nothing there. He unholsters his gun and slowly pulls the hammer back.
2: We need to get to the church. They'll be here soon.
0: He kneels down by Maggie and hands her his gun.
2: Maggie, I need you to trust me. If we don't get out of here now, I fear for our safety my truck is parked right outside you hold on to this and if anyone or anything approaches use it you think you can do that
0: the preacher stands again and looks out the peephole. all clear maggie stands gun in her hand and drifts into the living room her thoughts clouded by grief and anger first her husband now her best friend it's all too much tears roll down her face as the voice of Trudy bounces around again and again and again in her head, offering her the one thing in the world she wants, offering her hope. Her hand tightens on the grip of the gun and aims it at the preacher as he's looking out the peephole.
2: John, I need you with me on this, okay? What's coming?
0: Maggie's eyes are watering. Her hand shakes. She's not a killer. She drops the gun. Maggie. Maggie whips around and sees Avit standing there. Avit, her dead husband. The preacher and Hardigan both turn and see him. Hardigan grabs his chest. <gasps> Fucking heart attack, man. John. John. The preacher kneels down to Hardigan, the only friend he's had in the ten years since the passing of his wife, and watches him die.
1: I've missed you so.
3: Avit. I never imagined I would lay eyes on you again.
0: Trudy. This gets the Preacher's attention.
1: You met her earlier, remember? She followed through on our deal.
2: Our deal?
3: Kill the Preacher, and we can be together again.
0: The front door reverberates with a deafening roar. Some unseen force on the outside presses against it, trying to thrust itself inside by sheer will and determination. Hands scrape against the solid oak, desperately clawing at the door. It's joined by another, and another.
2: You would have me kill someone.
0: If it meant we could be together again.
2: You are not my Avid.
3: Maggie,
1: how can you say that?
3: I would do anything for you, whatever the cost. Not even God himself can keep me away
2: from you. Maggie, this man may look like someone you know, but I assure you, he is not him. You can't ask me to kill him.
3: He's a man of God. If he dies, he'll be in heaven. You're doing him a favor.
0: There's a flash of recognition on the preacher's face. A missing piece suddenly falls into place and offers some understanding of the bigger picture that is unfolding around. He grabs Hardigan's gun and presses it against his own temple. Maggie. Maggie turns back to face the preacher as he calls from across the room.
2: We've only just met, but I believe wholeheartedly that you are being manipulated to carry out the will of another. Isn't that right, Trudy?
0: Maggie turns back to where Avit was standing and sees only Trudy there.
1: What are you gonna do with that gun, Preacher?
0: The banging on the front door rises to a fever pitch. The Preacher braces himself against the door like a chair guarding the entrance of Eden, holding back the coming onslaught.
2: If old Scratch is so interested in me, I guess it's time I pay him a visit.
0: <sighs> Isn't that against your rules?
1: Your God's not gonna like that.
2: I think I've read something about a shepherd abandoning the 99 sheep in order to search for the one that is lost.
1: (laughs) God won't
2: find you down there. Well, I've never been crazy about sunshine and clouds and streets of gold.
0: The preacher pulls the hammer back.
2: I can't promise you your husband again, Maggie. And I can't promise you a happy ending when this is complete. But this I say with absolute certainty. The one responsible for killing your husband, and the one responsible for all the tragedy of this evening, is nearby. And if you want your revenge, you'll have to give up everything to get it. Right now!
1: Preacher! Preacher. Okay, Preacher.
0: Maggie's used up all her tears. We are the sum of our experiences, and as such, she knows what needs to happen. The preacher pulls the trigger and blood spatters across the ceiling and his lifeless body falls to the floor. The front door bursts open and a horde of demons fall through the entryway. They rush to Maggie, bloodthirsty, clawing at her. She puts the gun to her head. Maggie finds herself marooned along some kind of shoreline. There are no stars, no moon, no ambient light to illuminate that which is around her, only darkness. She feels her head where the bullet just entered her brain, but finds no evidence of the act. Is she dead? She hears familiar voices rise above the sound of the waves around her and sees two figures down by the water's edge with an overturned rowboat she cautiously steps towards
1: her.
3: I've got to strung her arms. You know that. It's like your arms are tiny. Slather some sauce on them and a lot will be mistaken for chicken wings. Let me do it. Would it not make the most sense to do it together? I don't need your help.
0: Okay, Lucas.
3: He be wary of any splinters.
0: Lucas tries to make the boat a ride, unsuccessfully.
2: What are you doing here?
0: The Pistol Brothers, surprised, turn and see Maggie. Ma'am?
2: Where are we?
0: A voice calls out from behind them, one of authority that demands the attention of all present.
2: I believe this is hell.
0: Maggie turns and sees the preacher walk out of the shadows. This was in hell. Saratoga Lights is written and directed by Randall LaRue. Audio recording and engineering by Matthew David Rudd. Music by Randy Reynolds. This episode featured the voice talents of John Nichols, Jordan Merritt, Valerie Rose Lohman, Brooke Chalmers, Ryan Colt-Levy, Brian Villalobos, Freddie Hines, and Matthew David Rudd. Until next time.
1: Thanks for tuning in, dear neighbors, to KTX nine three nine, Bringing you music that makes your sister say hallelujah. Now betwixt the lies and compromise of this great state of ours, I'm here to tell you I've seen a higher power. One of grace and strength and raw cane sugar built for something greater and most assuredly sweeter. When people ask who I believe in, am I a Baptist, a Pentecost, Mary Magdalene, non-denominal, I tell them that I believe in music. Music, Ralph, you fool, how can that be? Let me tell you, friend, how can you believe if you do not first hear? I think it's time to hear from that songbird of the Sabine, Miss Joe Grace on KTX.